Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Hey Bridget, what, what do you see that inspires you online with dentistry? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that inspire me for different ways, but I think the most eye-catching is always when you see, you know, a, a smile transformation where you know that someone's life has probably been changed, they're walking around with these fabulous teeth and the work of a lot of the dentists out there that we're seeing are absolutely amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's always caught me is watching or seeing the best dentists do their cases and posting them online. It's it's amazing. You can be lost for hours looking at this stuff. And someone who has caught all of our eyes for sure is Dr. Bharat Agarwal. Um, and of course, you were talking with him today. What did you guys start talking about? Yeah, so I had a really interesting chat with Bharat. Um, and I think it was something that we don't always think about when we think about dentistry and that's the psychology of patients and the steps that we go through in getting a patient ready to have treatment because it's one thing to get someone to say yes but we need to make sure that the patient that we're selecting to do dentistry on are kind of going into it for the right reasons. So a lot of our listeners probably know Barat and have seen some of his great work or attended some of his courses. He's a super generous guy with his knowledge and we're so grateful to have had him on the podcast. As a new grad, I always thought that I had to treat every single patient. And as a dentist, you kind of go through university, get your degree when you graduate, and you kind of feel like that's your license to go out there and practice all facets of dentistry and offer patients a solution for everything. Um, And I think that was something that I was really stressed about when I first started. If a patient came in, I'd want to give them a solution for everything. If I felt I couldn't treat it or if I felt I couldn't deliver the results that were expected of someone who was a dentist, I'd sort of really beat myself up over it. And I think as you sort of practice dentistry more and more and learn more about dentistry, you kind of realize that it's so, so broad and so, so expansive. And this is particularly relevant when we talk about aesthetic dentistry. And a lot of the, I guess, treatments that are associated with aesthetic dentistry are often elective treatments as well. So it's even more stressful from that perspective of are you delivering uh, what the patient really Um, expects from you and I think that's such a big part of it because with aesthetic dentistry there's so many facets to it you need to be able to appropriately diagnose the patient so you know what it is that they want and what you can deliver you need to treatment plan appropriately you need to have the skill set to be able to deliver that treatment plan but I think the biggest thing that often gets overlooked is that you're treating a patient who is seeking something that may be elective and the psychology of what goes in uh, into that and I think it's something that's not commonly spoken about And it's interesting because so many people who practice aesthetic dentistry or um, aspire to do aesthetic dentistry have at some point been burnt by a patient where you have done everything you can, you've diagnosed things as best as you could, you've treatment planned well, and you've executed as well as you possibly could, and you still have a disgruntled patient at the end who's not happy with their outcome. And I think that's particularly relevant with aesthetic dentistry because it is often so subjective, you know, what is aesthetics, you know, what's nice looking to some, you know, one person isn't necessarily nice to someone else. And I think that's tricky because we always talk about beauty being in the eye of the beholder, right? And I think that's a really interesting notion because then when you start, I guess, getting patients to get fussy and they're not happy with their outcomes, you start blaming the patient. You know, how many times have you sat back and gone, oh, that patient's like super 
unreasonable. You know, and you're like, oh, it's not my fault. I've done everything. Yeah, I they're can. crazy. Yeah, you're they're crazy. Yeah, patient. everyone's got crazy patients. <laughs> and that's really interesting because a lot of the time it is just our inability to understand what our patients want, our inability to deliver maybe what our patients want. But then the truth is probably that last scenario of your patient being crazy <laughs> could be true. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of patients who are out there who have completely unrealistic expectations. And that's a really, I guess, interesting part of all of this you know the more you do I think this kind of dentistry the more you'll meet these kind of people and I don't know if you've heard much about like body dysmorphic disorder before but that's definitely something I'm seeing more and more in my practice and it's actually really interesting there was a really nice bit of research done by a prosthodontist in Melbourne you might have heard of her Dr Carolina Perez yeah so she wrote a paper on body dysmorphic disorder and I guess it was really fascinating to sort of see the prevalence of it and how it sort of Mm -hmm. I guess manifests in clinical practice and the truth is you know a lot of us graduate wanting to do aesthetic dentistry and if you position yourself as someone who does that chances are you're statistically more likely to meet these people and these people generally um, have this, I guess, disproportionate obsession with one feature that they don't like. And it could be their teeth, could be their skin, could be their nose. You know, there's lots of things that they fixate on. Mm-hmm. And the biggest issue with these patients is because this, I guess, this predisposition with whatever it is, it's so often irrational to the to the I guess the uh, the average average person out there mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter how good your technical outcome is they're still going to find something wrong with it because the truth is they think that if you fi- if they fix that aesthetic shortcoming or that cosmetic discrepancy that they have, it's going to bring them happiness or joy. And we all kind of know that, yes, that's part of it, but it's not going to change your life. You know, and that's probably the, the big thing that we need to look out for. So I guess, the, I guess this is something that doesn't get, really get spoken about a lot. And I think it's really important for us as dentists to be able to identify these patients. And like anything in dentistry, we always go through that sort of cascade of treating patients right they come in we treat their acute emergencies first and we then go on and get their hygiene sorted you know get their you know periodontium under control and then go on to restorative treatments and elective treatments and just like that in aesthetics it's the same sort of cascade where we look at obviously getting them stable but then part of the I guess the next step after getting them stable is really looking at the psychology are their expectations realistic and if they are only then do you then go into your I guess, aesthetic treatments or your elective treatments afterwards. And if their expectations are unrealistic, we really need to, I guess, consider whether what we're proposing is going to get that patient the outcome that they're after, or if they've, I guess, genuinely got this disorder, we need to get them the appropriate help. You know, maybe it's a like a psychiatrist that we need to get involved, not a dentist, you know, something beyond our scope completely, but easier said than done. You know, there's heaps of red flags and often you pick them when you're sort of knee deep in treatment. And that's usually when it's too late. Like once you've cut that tooth or, you know, started or embarked on treatment, can't really go back. So, yeah, something I think is really important for us to all be really, really aware of. And, yeah, something I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. It's so true. And particularly as a kind of a newer or more recent graduate, we see all this awesome stuff on your Instagram and, you know, we want to start trying to do that. So when you have a patient that walks in the door that maybe expresses interest in some aesthetic work, we're probably going to get a little bit excited about it. But knowing, I guess, those red flags is probably really important. Do you have a couple of those things that you look out for where you might be telling them that you might not be able to meet their expectations? 
Totally. And look, I, I'm no expert at this and I definitely still from time to time go, oh my God, should I have started treatment on this patient or sort of get halfway in and go, have I you know, missed some of these red flags there? And I agree with you completely. I was the same as a new grad, like a patient came in inquiring about veneers and I get super excited. I was like, this is the best thing that could happen. I am going to do these veneers and change this person's life and I'm going to be such a hero. And I think that sort of leads on to one of the big red flags. You know, often these patients come into your practice and they, and I used to be really flattered by this. They'd be like, oh, Brad, I've read your bio Mm -hmm. and I've done my research and someone told me to come and see you. And they, they kind of pump you up. They sort of, I guess, pat you on the back a little bit before they start and kind of, you know, put you on that pedestal. And I, I don't know, like over the years, I found that that's a red flag. Like often when they sort of, you know, start off with that, you can't, they've done their research. They really want to see you. They really think you're going to be the person to change their life. Yeah. And it's kind of like, why? Like, why have you chosen me? There's plenty of dentists around who could probably deliver the same thing. So I think that's one little thing that sort of puts me on guard a little bit going, okay, well, hey, let's just be a bit careful with this patient. Let's really sort of mm-hmm. um, narrow down. And some patients are genuinely just nice people who want to say nice things to you. So I, I don't think you... Yeah need to see the worst in humanity through that but I think it is something you can look at I guess other factors that I often look at is and this is a really interesting one so I did read some research somewhere that talked about I guess the early 30s male who's still single and that's a really like an odd one that you kind of don't expect that you always sort of associate these things with sort of females being more predisposed with their appearance and things like that but there was like an odd stat about that so that sometimes you know gets me on edge a little bit going, hey, is this person going to think that then, you know, me fixing their smile is going to help them find a life partner or get a better job or something like that, for example. Yeah. I guess probably the big things to prevent yourself getting into trouble and, you know, often it's not easy to diagnose these patients, I guess is just training yourself to be better at objectifying something that's so subjective. I think if you can have that really honest conversation with that patient, about their expectations, about their their current shortcomings, and I guess even what could be clinically expected from treatment, you tend to avoid those situations a little bit more so. And I really love, I guess a lot of experienced clinicians talk about themselves having good hands, but they also have really good eyes. And I've heard um, Tony Rotondo go on record saying that. And I think that's a really, really important point. You know, so much of it is, um, and I really love this saying, the eye can't see what the mind doesn't know. So you really need to start training yourself to be able to see better so you can have those better conversations with your patients about something that is largely really subjective. But if we can use some of these more objective parameters to facilitate that conversation, I think that really, really helps. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, a couple of those, like knowing your aesthetic parameters, knowing your dentofacial aesthetic parameters, I think that really does facilitate that conversation. From there on, it's about how do you communicate this to your patient? How do you help them understand these things that we then train ourselves to know automatically? Our patients aren't experts at this. And There's a couple of different tricks that I use in practice to try and get them to understand what we're talking about before we embark on treatment. And there's some really simple things you can do. So the non-bonded composite mock-up, you know, that's something that I use day in, day out. You know, you dry the teeth, obviously don't etch and bond them because once you've done that, there's no coming back. And just apply a bit of composite to the teeth there, shape it how you think aesthetically it's going to be appropriate, light cure it, show the patient, take some photos, if they love it, take some impressions, use that to guide your future interventions. But that's a that's a really cool trick that we use regularly. Yeah, that's a good idea. Other things, heaps of photos, 
videos, doing your digital planning, that can really help as well. Yeah. Uh, and then the world of 3D is really cool, you know, doing like things like facial scans and obviously 3D scans. And I guess is like the more records you have and the more things and examples you can show them, if it does come at the end of treatment that they're still not happy or they're still like you're still not meeting their expectations, you, you've kind of got that security of, you know, we did this, you had a look at that and you really liked it and said it was okay. So you're kind of covering yourself from that consent side of things as well I suppose absolutely yeah look I agree completely and I think an example that comes to mind is a patient where he had some very average dentistry done overseas Mm -hmm. and you know we talked about improving it and we we got his you know gingival health under control we removed his old dentistry and put some provisional crowns on for him so we hadn't really done anything irreversible we'd just taken off what he had clean things up and just put some nice provisionals on there. The patient was very controlling. This is, a, again, one of one of those patients that may have fallen into that sort of body dysmorphia um, category that I failed to identify. Mm-hmm. And he was very prescriptive about how long he wanted his teeth and you know, not to be longer than the originals and, and those kind of things. And what we, I guess, really utilised to effectively communicate with him was our digital technology. So we actually scanned him preoperatively, we scanned his provisionals, and then we could overlay the two models and actually show him that there was no change in length, that we had sort of followed his prescription. And when that wasn't sufficient for him to understand that we hadn't made any differences, that's when the red flags were really ringing. And I guess I never went to finals with him. You know, I referred him on before we even replaced his provisionals because you know, in, in my mind, objectively, we'd done everything he'd asked for, yet he was still finding flaws and being so prescriptive about those flaws as well. Yeah. So you're 100% right. The better the records you have, the better your communication is going to be as well in the yeah. long run, which is really important. I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor and ask a question. But how do you make the most out of your CPD? I think the first step is to make sure you've chosen the right CPD and how do you know that unless you've seen it all? cpdjunkie.com.au is made so that all of the dental CPD in Australia and New Zealand is in the one place. We've got all of the webinars, all of the live courses coming up on the website, easy to find and easy to filter. And the second step, well, it's all in the free ebook on their website, cpdjunkie.com.au, the home of Australian dental CPD. Thank you for supporting dental students and graduates and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. I think as a new grad, it's also important to not be afraid to say no to treatment as well. Like you don't have to treat every single patient or every single case. If you don't feel that the patient acknowledges their own shortcomings or the shortcomings that can be expected from treatment or doesn't want to buy into your treatment philosophy, it's okay to say no. No one, you know, I've never ever lost sleep over a patient that I've refused to treat or had that conversation with saying that, look, I don't have the skill set to treat you, but I can refer you to someone who does. I've never ever, I guess, thought about those patients twice or worried about them, whereas there's plenty of patients that I have treated that Maybe I fail to acknowledge some of those red flags that have kept me up at night or have stressed me out. And these patients often, and particularly these patients with body dysmorphic disorder, they can consume so much of your emotional time and so much of your clinical time. And it becomes such a burden on you as a clinician that you sort of spend every day thinking about this patient, when they're going to call, what's Mm -hmm. that next appointment going to be like? 
and you sort of dread going to work on the days that you know that they're booked in. And I don't think that's a really healthy way to practice. So I guess don't be afraid to say no. There's no expectation as a dentist when you graduate that you can do everything or deliver everything. It's okay to refer patients to someone else. And it's also okay to tell a patient honestly that you just don't have the skill set or you don't feel comfortable treating that patient or you don't mm-hmm. think that you're the right dentist for that patient for that particular aspect yep. and that's okay you can refer a patient to an orthodontist a prosthodontist a periodontist mm-hmm. or someone else in your practice who's more proficient at treating that and you can still be that dentist who sees them for their maintenance or their general care yep. afterwards and, and patients you'll find will really value that you know mm-hmm. they'll value your honesty what they won't value is you getting in there and doing treatment that maybe you weren't capable of doing and you're not going to value treating a patient who doesn't value you or isn't emotionally stable to receive your dentistry as well. So yeah, don't be afraid to say no. Do you have any tips for what maybe the the perfect first patient might be for an aesthetic case? So someone who is able to have a, a new or more recent graduate do some aesthetic dentistry on them. Okay, that's a really, really good question. So uh, I guess my answer to that is twofold. So I think if you want to be a really good aesthetic dentist, the first thing we really need to accept is that everything that we do is aesthetic. So even when you do that DO on that upper seven where no one is going to see it, treat that like that is the best feeling you're ever going to do. So I think if we start perceiving there's going to be beauty in everything that we do, your outcome's going to be better straight away because you're training yourself to, to do that. So that's the first way to manage that. Now, I think the perfect first case starts with the perfect first consultation. So often it will be a person who or a patient who has been referred word of mouth. So they've already have been recommended by someone that they trust. So that's a, a really good first start. The second thing when we're talking about aesthetics is, for me, asking the right questions when we begin. So a lot of it starts with, you know, what is it that you're unhappy with? And that's a very obvious first point when someone's talking about aesthetics and getting them to identify that. But I always follow it up with a why now? Like what is it that what is what is it that's triggered right now? And if they say things like, you know, my husband doesn't like my teeth anymore or my wife wants me to come in and get my teeth fixed and they're at that consultation by themselves, for me, it's kind of like, well, why is that person not in the room right now? So their motivating factors, I think, are really important. And if for them, it's just like, hey, it's just something I've really wanted to do for a long time. I finally sort of got around to, to doing it. Great. You know, that might be a good patient to start with. And your perfect first aesthetic case is the case where you're not drilling or reducing any tooth to achieve that end outcome. The moment you start drilling that tooth away and start doing something irreversible, you've started that restorative cycle for that patient there Mm -hmm. and if it's something that's purely elective then you better be ready to see that patient for the rest of your life and own every single problem that they have going forward from that you know that point forward so really your perfect first aesthetic case is going to be something like a whitening case maybe something that's done in conjunction with a specialist orthodontist where they've maybe realigned the teeth to put them in a better position And then maybe this adult patient just requires some form of additive bonding afterwards, something that's completely non-destructive. So I think those are are very, very safe first cases. It gives you a really good taste for occlusion, shows you what the specialist is thinking when they're moving the teeth, you know, what kind of parameters are they looking at? And then from there, you just build your skill set. And once you can do things in composite where you're the technician in mouth 
defining those aesthetic parameters, then you can do anything like indirect dentistry becomes the next step after that. You know, if you can control those little increments of composite, then hopefully you can do nice margins on your, your indirect restorations and you can be more prescriptive to your technician to what you're trying to achieve with your indirect restorations as well. Start with things where you're in control, simple things, and start with maybe some of your older patients. Yeah. Someone who <laughs> maybe someone who's not going to sit there and overanalyze, you know, everything that you do. Someone you've already built heaps of trust with. Um, you know, like a diastema closure on a, a seven-year-old who who's always wanted to do it, and you know, start with that. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com slash start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.